This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. Not long ago, well, it was just before the holidays actually, I received an email from a friend who was in the market for a shortwave receiver. Among all the features he was considering, there was one that he didn't quite understand, and that was called Synchronous AM. The radio he was considering offered that feature, and it looked attractive, at least at first blush, but it was a more expensive receiver, too. So his question was whether Synchronous AM was really worth the extra money. That's not an easy question to answer, so I had to start at the beginning with an explanation of AM itself. As I told him, an amplitude-modulated signal is made of an unmodulated carrier and two sidebands. The sidebands do the job of carrying the audio, and they spread out on either side of the carrier, frequency-wise. These two sidebands are reflections of each other, and the carrier is their common reference. So, the aim of the demodulation process is to extract the information contained within the sidebands with as little distortion as possible. This is relatively easy to do. I mean, at minimum, a diode detector is all you need. But for synchronous demodulation, things become a little more complicated. First, we need a mixer. The incoming signal is fed to the input of the mixer, where it's combined with a local oscillator signal running at the same frequency as the carrier of the incoming signal, and that's important. This mixing process converts the carrier to what I suppose you might call a zero-hertz signal, and the sidebands get converted to their baseband frequencies. Now, since we're calling this carrier zero hertz, it really appears as a DC voltage on the output of the mixer. And that DC level depends on the phase relationship between the carrier and the local oscillator. So, in other words, you now have a carrier in the radio that's effectively locked to the carrier in the signal. Of course, the sidebands of the AM signal will appear relative to the DC level. This is really a pretty clever approach when you think about it. At the input, you had a carrier signal that could be fluctuating up and down, as signals often do, but now it's been reinforced, some will say replaced, by a solid, steady carrier generated within the radio itself. I could imagine my friend's eyes glazing over at this point. I hope yours aren't either, so it was time to cut to the chase. The advantage of using synchronous detection in this fashion is that it really helps reduce the effects of selective fading. I told him that sometimes it's possible for the level of the carrier to fade by 10 to 15 dB relative to the sidebands. And when this happens, the normal approach to detection really doesn't work well, because suddenly you lose the carrier as its reference. What you get is annoying distortion instead. But with synchronous demodulation, you don't lose that important carrier reference so the distortion effects are greatly reduced. Another bonus is that you're able to usually demodulate and listen to much weaker AM signals than you might ordinarily enjoy. I think the best way to demonstrate synchronous AM is to just listen to it. So here's a shortwave broadcast that will demodulate with good old envelope detection, the kind used by most AM radios. 
I've deliberately chosen a weaker signal so that you can hear the impact of the selective fading. Listen closely and you'll hear the distortion as the strength of the carrier goes up and down. Okay, now let's switch on the synchronous detector and see if you can detect the difference. No pun intended. Here's the same signal, same time of day. Notice the difference? This is a rather lousy signal, yet the distortion has been greatly reduced. Synchronous AM isn't a panacea, of course. It isn't going to sharpen a poor signal to crystal clarity, but it can make a substantial difference in quality. If synchronous AM detection is so marvelous, though, why doesn't every shortwave receiver have it? Well, in fact, the majority don't, and the reason is mostly economic. There are several ways to implement synchronous detection in a radio, but what they all have in common is that they all require many more components than just your basic envelope detectors. More components equals more cost. But isn't it worth it to get the advantages of synchronous detection? Well, the answer depends on how the manufacturer chooses to design the detector. In other words, some perform better than others. The old Drake R8 receivers, for example, had an impeccably designed synchronous detector, and I thought it worked beautifully. But the R8 was also an expensive receiver back in the day. A fellow ham who is an engineer in the consumer electronics field once told me that the benefits of synchronous detection are really somewhat subjective. His company found that while some customers could definitely appreciate the difference, others couldn't, at least not sufficiently to justify paying the higher cost. In his opinion, going to the trouble to add synchronous detection amounted to gilding the proverbial lily. So the bottom line for my friend was that synchronous AM might be worth the extra cash, but he wouldn't know for certain without listening to the receiver himself before reaching for his credit card. These days that's nearly impossible, so I recommended that he pick a couple of receivers and then use Google Search to find reviews of the radios. YouTube is also a great source for reviews, where you can at least hear a demonstration of the radio before you buy it. I'm on the telephone with Dave Tipping, NZ1J, and uh, Dave is a member of the Meriden Amateur Radio Club here in Wallingford, Connecticut. Good morning, Dave. Morning, Steve. And Dave, the reason we're chatting is because you and your group have done something uh, kind of interesting with fox hunting. I mean, I'm used to uh, fox hunts as something that the club would say, okay, at four o'clock on a Saturday, we're all going to go out, we're going to form teams, we're going to do this very formal thing. But you folks have used a, a different approach, haven't you? Well, uh, we were sort of forced to. Uh, with the pandemic this year, uh, we really couldn't form teams. So we were just getting ready to to start a series of fox hunts after years of inactivity in fox hunting among the club members. And then the pandemic hit, and we put everything on hold. And then shortly after the pandemic hit, we realized this was actually an activity that was a good fit for a pandemic, as long as we didn't form teams. So now, uh, the way we've been doing it, which I think differs from the traditional fox hunt that most of us are familiar with, we don't have a central starting location because we don't want to be bringing people together unnecessarily. And 
the only teams that we allow is you can bring your wife, you can bring your son, and we do get a lot of that. A lot of families come out. Uh, the the XYL drives and the uh, ham you know, watches the radio and maybe also looks at the map and things like that. And uh, we found that the families wanted to get out early on in the pandemic. Uh, everybody was cooped up at home. And they wanted to just get out. So here they were now driving around in a car just with family members. I guess now people say they're in their pod. Uh, so they're safe. They're socially distanced. And they were doing the, the fox hunting pretty much independently. And that that's the way we started out. Now, Dave, for those who may not be aware, and I want to take this all the way back to ground level, could you briefly define what fox hunting is? Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, in fact, when I'm speaking to non-amateurs, I always call it transmitter hunting. Because once you say the word fox to someone who's not familiar with it, they start thinking in terms of a real fox. And I've also heard somewhere on the Internet, some people call it a bunny hunt, although I, I don't think that's very common. So it's a hidden transmitter hunt. And I guess there is no official way that it operates, but I guess there's a bit of a de facto standard. What people usually do is one ham parks his car somewhere and transmits intermittently on his mobile radio, usually on two meters, at least in the United States. And other amateurs use things like directional antennas and also signal strength to, to try to locate them. What you've done that I think is particularly clever, I don't know if it's unique to to you, perhaps somebody else has done it as well, but, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Dave, the fox hunts transpire over an entire weekend, is that correct? Uh, we, we do a lot of fox hunting. Well, for some reason, um, this has really caught on with our club, and we have been doing it weekly, all year long. So we've done more than three dozen hunts. What we, we're now referring to as live fox hunts, where there's an actual person operating the radio. We also do uh, fox in a box or fox boxes. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. We do the automated transmitters. Now, this is not an idea we came up with. Um, there's a group in Manchester, Connecticut, that has been putting out these fox boxes. And I think they actually... Uh, really got energized this year as well. I think the idea's been around for a while, but this year, maybe due to the pandemic, they started putting these out. And I think typically they're built in an ammo can. So you, you put in the transmitter, the battery, some sort of automatic controller, uh, a built-in antenna, you chain it to a tree somewhere, uh, you put it near parking, but on the edge of a park or near a linear trail, and you leave it out for maybe up to a week because they, they are transmit on command. So generally, they have a, a touch-tone DTMF decoder in them. So you, you identify yourself. You're a hunter. You identify yourself. You transmit, say, a touch-tone 1, if that's what it's programmed for. That activates the transmitter. It runs for 30 seconds or a minute, and then shuts off again. So if you need another bearing, you send another touch-tone and restart it. So this, this keeps the battery uh, life really long and and sometimes you get five days out of it and we have been doing that so we've been doing in the Maryland club both the live hunts and the fox boxes could you describe the technology in your particular fox in a box yeah mine is a homebrew unit uh, there are commercially available units and i think in the manchester club i think they tend to use the commercially available units 
what I found was uh, with the Ar- Arduino being available, um, lots of opportunities are open to us now. So all I did, I took a, a really old handheld. It doesn't need to be old, but I didn't want to commit a new one. I put in an Arduino, wrote a little bit of software for it, and you can also now buy a DTMF decoder boards for uh, like $4. So you put in a battery, and I use a lead-acid battery, and the, a radio, the DTMF decoder, the Arduino, a little bit of software to tie it all together, another very small circuit because you have to modulate the radio. So the Arduino also does the modulation. So the Arduino sits there waiting to, to get a signal from the DTMF decoder. The decoder sends a signal that says the, the radio came on, it came out of its squelch and heard a DTMF-1. So that sends a signal. The Arduino now starts a, a process where it says, okay, activate the transmitter. We generally send out a beep every couple of seconds, just give you a little proof of life. It's better than listening to, to a dead carrier. And then Morse code ID, and then it shuts off and it goes back to listening. Okay. And roughly, um, how much range does your typical Fox in a Box have? Well, it depends on where you place the antenna. We have kind of standardized on one watt of transmit power. And we find, depending on terrain and depending on what antenna you use and how high you get it, um, four miles is relatively easy. And we tend to hunt over this smaller area. We kind of learned as we went this year doing this, but one thing that we found is most of the hunters don't really want to be driving around 15, 20 miles looking for something. So what we say is in, in our club, we've been saying uh, the town of Wallingford and Wallingford is about 40 square miles. It's about seven miles by seven miles. So what we say every time is we're going to be within the confines of Wallingford. One of the reasons we stick to the same area over and over, people start developing maps. And on the maps, they put points of interest. They say, well, here's a park, here's a ball field, here's a linear trail, here's a a commuter parking lot. And with the expectation that that's probably one of the places where you're hiding. And they just get to know the roads. They get to know good places to take bearings. So we keep it to this 40-square-mile area, and we find that, Generally, from anywhere in that area, you can hear the signal, even with a, an antenna that's only a foot or two off the ground. And then as you get in closer, of course, it, it's no longer a problem. So we've been we're using generally one watt. And from what I understand, the Manchester Club is doing pretty much the same thing. Now, I've noticed that you're doing this in almost any kind of weather. So I'm presuming you you have the fox in a box and some sort of weatherproof case? Well, the ammo can is, is an amazingly tough uh, product. Um, I think it, it's virtually airtight when it's sealed. It's got a gasket on it. It's got a big clamp that, that shuts it down. So it, it we aren't leaving the fox box out when the weather gets really, really bad. We don't want it buried under snow or anything. And we haven't yet gone through a winter. Um, but generally, the, the weather isn't a big problem for us. The hunters don't want to be out when the weather's bad. But if you want to put a box out for, say, five days, um, you, can, you can get through just about any kind of weather while it's out. Generally speaking, and of course, obviously, this varies by how many people are hunting, what would you say if you had to pick a number for the uh, success rate? Can we call it that? It's very high. 
I'm, I'm going to say 80%, but that's based on hunters who've now been out dozens and dozens of times, and they've gotten kind of good at it. When we first started at the beginning of this year, um, our search area was only four square miles because we knew hunters were going to come out and they weren't going to have a lot of specialized equipment. You need generally some sort of attenuator to do transmitter hunting. When you start, you're going to have a signal that's, that's of reasonable strength. So you come up with a directional antenna like a Yagi, you'll, you point it in the direction, you find maximum signal strength, you go in that direction. At some point, you're going to be close to the transmitter. You might be a thousand feet away. Well, now your S meter you're going to find is, is buried. It's off scale all the time. So it's uh, nearly impossible to get a, a direction at that point without an attenuator. So there's a bunch of different methods you can use to locate the hidden transmitter, but something like a Yagi and an attenuator is typical. A good attenuator is what they call an offset attenuator, which is actually a mixer. It mixes in, say, 4 megahertz with the received signal, which creates a new image signal that's 4 megahertz shifted off from the original signal. So let's say the, the hidden transmitter was on 146 megahertz. You put it through your mixer, and it makes these images at 142 and 150 megahertz. You set your radio to, say, 142 megahertz, and now if the very, very strong signal tries to get around the attenuator, get into the transmission line, get into the radio. That's not the frequency you're listening to. So you're only receiving the image frequency. And now you can get really, really close. You can attenuate more than 60 decibels. So a conventional attenuator is pretty much just a bunch of resistors. And that works to a point, but it's never going to get you to, say, 60 decibels of attenuation because you're going to find the, the RF energy finds a way around the attenuator. The offset attenuator is really a, a perfect fit for hidden transmitter hunting. But what do you say to a club full of people, none of whom own an offset attenuator, and say, well, everybody go out and buy one, and then we'll do a fox hunt. So uh, that method isn't going to work for us. So I, I'll tell you when you ask what we did about that. Okay, well, I'd like to know, sure. Okay, we put out uh, initially three transmitters. One ran at one watt. One ran at 10 milliwatts, and a third one ran at 1 milliwatt. So to go from 1 watt to 1 milliwatt, that's a 30 decibel reduction. This way, it's getting closer without any specialized equipment. You just change to a different frequency, go to the lower power transmitter, and this way we found club members could come out without investing much in equipment and, and find the hidden transmitter. As the weeks have gone by, uh, a lot of club members have invested quite a bit into this. Uh, pretty much uh, everybody either built or bought a Yagi. Uh, there's lots of offset attenuators. People have got mapping software on their tablets, all, all kinds of stuff. We have one club member had a vest made up, and he had custom embroidery on it that says that, that he's part of the Meriden Amateur Radio Club Botton. <laughs> and, of course, being a member myself, I can't help but uh, notice that you keep everyone informed by sending regular emails, right? Yeah, well, like I think with any group activity, even though even though we're a group but we are, are uh, distanced and we are safe in the pandemic, in a group activity you have to maintain interest. So if 10 people come out and, and we get 10 or more hunters for a typical hunt, um, the people who didn't come out, they need to hear about it. They need to hear 
that, yes, we did do this, and yes, it was fun, because if they're not hearing that on a regular basis, they don't have much motivation to come out and join us next time. Certainly. I, I have to ask, has a member of the public ever found one of your Fox in a Boxes? Not so far, thankfully. Um, we did have one incident, and it's a little bit of a long story, but it's kind of humorous. I had placed a box at a soccer field, and this was early on, and I wanted, I wanted it to be easy because it was early on. You know, if skilled fox hunters, they can go look for difficult hidden transmitters. So I wanted it easy. So in general, I would tie a, a, an orange ribbon to a tree nearby, and the, the hidden transmitter would be 20, 30 feet into a wooded area, so it wasn't really visible, and this is to keep uh, non-hunters from accidentally finding it. But I put an orange ribbon there. Well, on this particular hunt, I also put a cardboard box near it, and I, I put my call sign on the box. I thought this will be very easy. Somebody comes up, they see the box, they know they're here. Well, it turns out the um, public works department came by, and they were empty and dumpsters and things, and they, they saw the box and they threw it away. <laughs> That's unfortunate. Oh, well, it was an empty box. With a little bit of fear, one of the hunters um, called me and said, you know, I, I, I got here and, and I watched them throw the box away. What are we going to do? He was thinking at that time that that was the transmitter, but that was just an empty cardboard box left near the, near the edge of the, of the wooded area to, to alert hunters that, yes, you're here and the transmitter is not far away. Um, so he had a little bit of a scare. I never did because I knew it was an empty box. Well, thank you, David. This has been very informative. Well, thank you, Steve. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to join you today. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech, produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.